Hello and welcome back to the Cisco UKI podcast, the podcast where we take the acronyms out of tech and we put the fun in. Hey, I'm Jitu. Thanks for listening to the Cisco UKI podcast. I love that podcast. Rosie, look at us. Come on. Back podding again. It feels like all we're doing is podding these days. I know, I'm enjoying it to be fair. I do enjoy hearing people's different stories and like getting to know people and it's the good part about doing the podcast, I think. I mean, I say we've been podding a lot. We've actually not. We've recorded two like in the space of like a short <laughs> period of time. It's just because the rest of them have been so spaced out. But I agree. And on that note about people, here's my deep thought of the month, week, whatever. Okay. Is like, don't you just realise, like, in life how important work people are, like, in your actual life? And I know that we 100%. joke all the time, right? And we, obviously, everyone that sees us is like, you two are always together. And But I think when it comes to work friends, and you sent me a TikTok about it recently, like, how you can know someone for such a short period of time, but when you know them in a work setting, you'd get to know someone really quickly, really fast. And I think mm-hmm. it's true. And maybe it's really cheesy and maybe it does totally depend on where you work and what kind of culture you're in. But work does become like another family. And like you share things with work people that you might not share with other people and you go through similar challenges. And we experience, and this is where I'm going to get deep, as work as work colleagues, life's ups and downs. And we know it this week, like I'm some news from the team and just whenever you hear like stories of anybody in your team and it really affects everyone and I just think we're very lucky and I feel very lucky here to have such a a team that does feel like a family and yeah I've I've shared life's ups and downs on this roller coaster over the last 18 months and it feels almost like I've been here forever and I just wanted to call that one out because I think it's important that we acknowledge it. Yeah, no, we're we're very lucky that our team is very much a family feeling, not in a cult way, um, <laughs> in an actual way. <laughs> but, you know, like, companies so good. We're a family and actually, like, it's very toxic. But, no, we're, we are lucky that it's a family in a, in a normal sense. But, I know, we in the office tomorrow, as long as everyone feels comfortable with it, but everyone's getting an extra hug tomorrow. I know. So, yeah, we're going to be in the office. And, yeah, and on the... Speaking about life and what you share with work people, I have some news to share. Oh, drum roll, please. This is the point that I could edit it in or I could just do this. And that feels more fun. So I am having another baby. Act surprised, Rosie. Act surprised. As if you haven't known since like the very beginning, hence what I was talking about work people and the importance of. But yeah, I'm going to be having another baby. So there you go, podcast listeners. Um, the news I've actually been waiting for someone I know to have a baby because I have the perfect baby gift. And I'm so excited to get it. Um, so you'll be guessing it because you're the first person that's been pregnant since I found it. So I'm not Wait, telling you what it is. How did you come across it though? Is it like a recommendation from another parent or no? Obviously, it was on TikTok, but um, it's super right, okay. cute. I like surprises. Okay, so oh, it's going to okay. be surprise, and really no one else knows that we're going to get it. But I'm just I'm going to involve other people. I'm going to involve the team. They're going to have to contribute to this gift that I've got in mind. But oh wow, it's a big gift. 
Oh, I'm very excited. Great. <laughs> yeah, that was... So, like, looking back now in hindsight, Vegas was a fun experience. <laughs> obviously, I had not long found out. I was quite early on, so obviously couldn't have a drink or anything. But I had my little a cohort of um, trustees that I had told the news to, and you were all great. You helped me at the bar to order my soda and limes and disguise it as gin and tonic, which was much appreciated. And, yeah, and... It's just been it's been a whirlwind again. So already got a three year old, new baby in the way come March. So lots of change, lots of exciting times, and yeah, nice to be on the journey with you on the podcast. Yeah, but I mean, you're not going to be allowed to not be doing the podcast while you're off on maternity leave. <laughs> I've already called that one out. I'm like, I'm not leaving. The podcast is going to be my sanity within the newborn bubble. So I'll be back. That'll be my way to keep in touch with everyone. And yeah, so I'm excited. I'll be I'll be joining the pod and it'll be like an hour of peace and quiet. I can't wait. <laughs> but we've got a really exciting guest today, haven't we? We do. We have a great topic and I was really... We've known about this one. It's been in the pipeline for a wee while and I've been excited to talk about it because um, I think it's really topical and I think lots of people will learn something from it. But yeah, the theme of this podcast is actually about neurodiversity in the workplace. So... We are talking to Richard from Cisco, who kind of shares his experience um, and some of his learnings and his everything that he's learned from a personal point of view. And yeah, as his role of exec sponsor of the CDAN network within EMEA, um, he tells us some of the background of that. And yeah, all in all, a really enjoyable conversation, didn't you think, Rosie? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it's um, very eye-opening, isn't it? Um, and also just to hear different perspectives and understand how we can do better as individuals moving forward. Agreed. And actually, what was the statistic that we found out was 30% of people in the UK have a neurodiversity, so or are neurodivergent. And I think actually it was quite an open, quite a frank conversation about the fact that we just shouldn't be scared to talk about these things because we shouldn't be scared to offend like unintentionally because I think a lot of people just don't like to talk about subjects that are maybe a bit scary because they're scared that they're going to see the wrong thing and that was something that we spoke about with Richard and I totally believe it like we just have to get to a point where we can be more understanding and more patient and just be willing to learn about things like this so yeah and I've also realized we've just used an acronym and we don't ever explain it so let's explain it so we talk about CDAN just now Sorry. and we have throughout the podcast but CDAN is Cisco's Connected Disability Action Network. So it's just the acronym for um, the kind of internal group that we have, like the support network. So CDAN, which stands for Connected Disability Action Network. I just well, realised we haven't actually explained that. <laughs> well, Richard, I think, does explain it in his, but this is good a good call out at this point. So, yeah, I don't think we'll say much more about it. I think maybe we'll just roll the interview shall we rosie we shall so yeah thank you so much for joining us for the cisco uki podcast today richard we're very excited about this topic that we're going to be covering so before we get into it all though um we always like to start our podcast with a bit of an icebreaker so in the past we've done things like 
if you were to go and pick a meal deal of your choice, what would you pick from the supermarket? But we've used that one quite a lot recently. So we tried to come up with a very spontaneous last minute icebreaker and we don't have a clever name for it. So we're going to put it out to the listeners who they can give us a clever name. But given this is a technology podcast, what we would like to know, Richard, is what is the one piece of technology that you could not live without? And what's the one piece of technology that you would bin if you were given the choice? Oh, blimey. Technology that I could not live without. There's so much technology in my life. I don't think there's one thing. I suppose, if I'm honest, it's the internet. I think I use it for everything. It's a good one. You know? Yeah. Um, and what would I bin? Oh, blimey. There's lots of technology I'd bin as well. Let's have a think of what I don't ever possibly ever use but I've bought. It's probably one of the kitchen gadgets, undoubtedly, <laughs> that I don't really require. So I don't you know. know. That, uh, I think everyone's got those. I actually went to, talking of kitchen gadgets, I was in mid Lidl. And we've, we've spoken on the podcast before about the middle section in Lidl, Rosie. But kitchen gadgets, I picked up what I thought was an incredible one. Because throughout my life, I don't know how many, like, pack, like how many scales I've bought for my kitchen. Like electronic yeah. ones or just like normal. And I keep thinking, like, I'm going to be this amazing baker, so I better have scales in my house. And I lose them or I break them. But Lidl had a little thing where it's like a big spoon, but it's like it weighs. So like when you spoon out your flour, it would then tell you the weight. Oh, there. that's quite cool. So it's quite fun. Yeah. So yeah, I know what you're saying about kitchen gadgets. You would bin them. We'll see how often I actually use it. But, this but you know what? You could probably it. get a spoon, you know, like, like in different measuring spoons, like a cup or whatever. Weigh up what flour was in there. And I bet you anything, it's kind of a typical weight. I mean, like a cup of flour probably is like 150 grams or something like that. That's why it's a cup. Yeah. Uh, it's the most common measurement. So I, I oh, reckon yeah. you would probably find out. That's all they did. They just worked it out, put a little scale on there, but it's just, you know. But anyway, yeah. it's quite, sounds quite so, handy. Anyway, sounds quite I useful. haven't used it yet. I've had it for two yeah. weeks and yet to use it, but we will see if <laughs> sure it will come in handy at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I always think it's quite wild, though, that, like, I'm older than Google, and I just think, like, that's just how technology develops so quickly in <laughs> the world that the, we live in. But The thing is, I'm so old. Wild. I remember when Google first came out, and I was thinking, yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? A search engine, you know. That, that was it. Never really thought about the data that sat behind it and all the money that was to be made out of advertising and selling my data. But there we go. I, when I joined Cisco, we were we had ISDN after a little while. They gave us ISDN. And that was like super exciting. Like, you know, two two lots of, uh, I think it was 48K. Um, and I thought that was super exciting. You know, really fast. Really fast. You know, because up Richard, to them we dial up. We have a rule on this podcast about acronyms. So you've now said ISDN. You're going to have to explain what ISDN is to the non-technical oh, people listening. Oh, ISDN. So basically, it was, I was going to say TDM then. It was technology, <laughs> like the old phone lines, you know. And essentially what they were able to do was it was nailed up bandwidth. So other than using a modem in the old days, you used to dial like, you know, a blip, 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 blip thing, you know, yeah. getting a very slow speed. 28k i think it was you got two lots of 48k um bandwidth i think it was 48k was it yeah 120 yeah i think it was anyway i'm losing track of them you add it up together came something in. Um, and essentially they gave that that was our plugged into a router and that gave you like high speed what was relatively high speed in those days nailed up bandwidth yeah nailed up 
Yeah. So you've kind of led us into the first question because you said when you mm. first started at Cisco. So please do take us back down memory lane. Can you give us a bit of a an understanding of your career path, your your career journey to now, and also what your current role is here at Cisco? Uh, my career path. So I joined in '97 and I was an account manager. To this day, I don't know why they gave me a job. Um, <laughs> I was I was I thought I was going to get caught and get fired. I'm sure I nearly got fired once. Well, that's another story for another time. And then, um, so I did account management. Um, enterprise travel was a sector for a while. So I had, and that's where um, eventually I looked after British Airways. During a time when British Airways was actually quite a good account to have, allegedly, because all the execs wanted the black card that gave you an automatic upgrade. So that, well, they gave them the automatic upgrade. So it was a lot of focus on it. And I sold the first IP telephony to an airline and then went on to sell to Terminal 5 as well. So it was Terminal 5, it was British Airways Terminal, but it was also BAA's terminal, and I sold both. So that was my last year as an account manager. And then I went into channel, working in the BT channel. Then I became a client director, working in SP, looking after B Sky B. And then after that, I went to go and help out working on services in the UKI. Just, I was a client director, but I was almost actively working as an RSM, helping the new leader of services who came from um, delivery in her role because she'd not been in sales. And then I took over the UKI. She moved on to channel. I took over the UKI. And then from there, I came into this job, which is now running services for EMEA. So that's it. So VP of services for EMEA. VP service sales, I should say. Not services because it's that CX. I'm service sales. <laughs> the sales in. Distinction. Not everyone understands the distinction, but there is a distinction. One's the sales and one I reports up to, to Wendy to Jeff. And then uh, the other part is the delivery arm, the BE that effectively makes it reports into to Maya. Well, that was a very good synopsis. Thanks for that. And you're also, I believe, the exec sponsor for CDAN at Cisco. So mm. there's another acronym. Can you explain to us what CDAN is and what is well, the now, CDAN for the community? Cisco. Yeah, so that, that was... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, so it's the Cisco Disability Action Network. So that action is the A. And um, and the idea behind it now is really to help people in the company who have disabilities and to tackle some of those challenges. And as a, glo it's a global, global organization, um, we need to pump up members in EMEA. Um, the UK is quite strong, as, the, as is the case with many of the, uh, the groups. But... Um, in terms of uh, Europe, we, we lack, or not just Europe, Middle East, Africa as well, we lack coverage. So, you know, and, and it's it's interesting when you're in this role, you get to see the different um, cultures, but also the different laws and how different these topics are dealt with in different countries. So it's not always as easy as just to say, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, because there may not be any legal basis behind it, or you may not be able to do certain things. So, um but but what we do need is that awareness of disability, and in each of the and have representation in each of those theatres, so that at least we can tackle some of those bigger problems. At least the ones that Cisco can tackle, um, like accessibility is a real straight one, right? Um, awareness. Yeah, Colette and I actually were on the um, the British Sign Language course that the CDAM ah, yes. uh, community yes. put out, and David O'Neill was um, part of organising, but. Like I've always yeah, wanted great. to kind of 
dip my toe in doing that. So I was very thankful that the CDAN community were able to put that out for the UK um Super oversubscribed. Team to be able to do. Super yeah, well, we managed to do it. I couldn't yeah. even get on. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, that's good. No, I'm, we, I absolutely loved it. Like, I mean, it was such a whirlwind, but just to have that basic understanding and just to be able to yeah. do the basics of your name, it was just fantastic. So, a really, really worthwhile thing. And hopefully, we'll be able to do more of them if it was that oversubscribed. It's um, always sure like everything else. Funding. It's a bit like it's a bit like Liz Truss's uh, politics. It needs funding, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, but I just think it like as you said it was super oversubscribed but it just shows you how much the cisco community want to get involved and be able to be that kind of accessible arm and um obviously you know you being the lead for mia do you have any particular interest in the cdan community like where does your passion come from uh so my I'm, oh excuse me my passion came from it's got something back in my throat. You get a frog in the back of your throat. So it might, that wasn't me getting all emotional. That was just me with something back in my throat. Um, it, it came from, I, I had an intern working with me and my team when I was a client director. And um, he was using a wheelchair. And we all got like briefed on, you know, how to deal with people with disabilities, you know, um, don't use terms like wheelchair bound and, and, and always crouch down. We're talking to someone, so you're talking to them on the same level, all that kind of basic stuff. Um, and there was two things that really impressed me about him. One was that we had a team meeting in Paddington Station before going off to do our stuff because we were always seeing the customer all the time. So we were always kind of in London meeting up. Um, and he, he arrived before we did. <laughs> and it was on, it was on the mezzanine in the Hilton Hotel meeting for a coffee. And he was there before we got there. And I just thought, my goodness, this, this lad's managed to get there, get through London, drive, get his wheelchair up onto that mezzanine, into that hotel, way before anybody else had arrived. And I just thought, you know, his determination was quite impressive. Um, you know, that was my first thing. But the, the thing that really made me interested in the topic was what he said about working out of Bedfont Lakes. So when he was with the team, we'd all go out and have lunch together and it would all be fun and it would be great. Um, he was only with us for a few weeks. Um, but when he was on his own, which was quite often because we would be out seeing clients in the different locations, he would be on his own going around Bedfont Lakes. He said, well, he couldn't serve himself food in the restaurant without having to ask someone to help because the height of the of the racks was too high. Um, he couldn't get water or cups of tea because everything was beyond his reach. Um, so he became beholding upon other people to be present and willing to help him. But the thing I think that moved me the most was watching him when I was watching from one of the balconies at Bedfont Lakes and watching him come in and people wouldn't make eye contact with him. And it made me realise that people are awkward around difference. And I think we all are, me included, right? Difference, you haven't seen difference before. I mean, disability, even in the UK, is kind of hidden. It's becoming less so now, more and more television programmes now. It's more, you know, there's been a conscious decision to try and bring, you know, what was effectively hidden from society, you know, as an embarrassment, I think, often treated as an embarrassment into mainstream because disability is there, physical disability and other forms of disability are there, but we're often hidden from us. And so watching people will be very polite that open a door for him to bring his wheelchair through because the doors here in, in Bedford Lakes are inaccessible. 
Um, other than the main door, which is electric, everything else is heavy glass doors. You can't possibly push those easily without reversing your wheelchair against the door. And it's very difficult. Yeah, if lifts don't work, you're pretty much done for. You're never going to get up on any floor. And I think it was the luck he'd be queuing up for, you know, getting a sandwich and people wouldn't even talk to him. They were just embarrassed. They'd look away. And he came back after I, he managed to get himself a job with one of our partners. Um, so it's quite good being at Cisco, got myself a job with the partners. And he came back for like a podcast like this. And I asked him the question, how did it make him feel? Because people were awkward around him because they didn't want to say the wrong thing. This is typically what happens with any topic that's potentially politically sensitive. And he said, um, it made him feel quite lonely and isolated, which kind of understood, right? He didn't feel part of the, the wider Cisco. And I said, but what if people said the wrong thing to you? That's what they were worried about, you know, maybe using terms like wheelchair bound or whatever. And he said, well, I just tell them I correct them why they got it wrong and we carry on the conversation. It's no big deal. And I think that sometimes, and I, and I also sponsor um, INC in Cisco for Amir as well. I think both topics are very similar in the sense that, and this is my opinion, not Cisco's, <laughs> that I think what we've, started to create is a society where it's very binary in its thought process. You know, you either with me or against me. So on that premise, I think made worse by media, made worse by social media, that people have become, you know, you have people like yourself doing sign language courses because you want to know you're that way inclined. You want to be more inclusive. You're not the problem. And then you've got the group on the other extreme who really don't care one way or another. Um, they may have extreme views. They may be extremely prejudiced and they clearly don't, I'm not going to be converted by anything I say or you say. I don't care about them either because I'm not going to be able to do anything with them. And they exist in Cisco as much as they exist in any other part of society. They may be more discreet, but they're there. And then in the middle is the majority of people. And, and the majority of people in the middle are the ones we need to tackle. And they're the people who are either scared of saying the wrong thing because they're a big group, scared of saying the wrong thing and therefore say nothing because they don't want to embarrass themselves. And my view on that one is it's a privilege, isn't it? So get over yourself, right? Embarrass yourself and apologize. But if you're positive intent, then that's all that matters. And that could be on any topic, whether it be disability or race or gender or sexuality or anything, you know, and then there are people there that just are not bad people, but just aren't engaged. Don't really care one with the other. It doesn't affect them day to day. And we need to find a way of engaging that group because that's the vast majority of the employees in Cisco and the vast majority of people in society. And I think sometimes what we deem as, in quotes, political correctness has created part of that problem. And it's also been created by the mindset of if you say the wrong thing, you're a bad person. That you're in this camp or you're against this camp. And actually, discourse, the ability to have a rational conversation and disagree or agree, or have your views changed, you know, the kind of one of the definitions of, of, of liberalism, right? Um, it, I think is where we need to head. We need to engage people in conversations because I do believe the vast majority of people in this world are decent human beings. They may be ignorant. They may not realise they, they're, they're uncomfortable with a topic or they may be clumsy in what they say, but their intent is positive. Most people, most people in this world are decent human beings. Of course, there are the extremes that are not. And there's some very bad people in this world, but but ultimately most people are decent people. And I think we may have created a, 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 a society where people are scared to say something in case they're being demonized 
for saying the wrong thing about a topic that maybe they don't fit in that group. My very Im- Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, very. No, I was just going to say, I think it's a very important point you've made is, is as long as you've got the willingness to learn and to change and adapt, then I don't think you can offend someone as long as you're willing to engage in the conversation and learn from that conversation. And it's funny that you should say that because we're obviously the main topic of today's podcast is going to be around neurodiversity and we always kind of tend to have planning calls ahead of podcasts and stuff and that was one of I guess my concerns is I want to make sure that we address it in the right way and we use the right terms but you can't really hold yourself back from having these conversations just because you're not sure of what the right way to say things is so I'm glad that like we can all be quite open on that like I don't know all the right ways to address the terms when it comes to neurodiversity and I don't know all the right questions to ask but I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that so yeah kind of just really keen to understand Richard we've got you on specifically but what is where does your passion for like the neurodiversity in the workplace stem from um, so so I, I I must admit that I'm pretty ignorant about neurodiversity as well although I am neurodiverse I've been clinically diagnosed uh, that was triggered by being the host for neurodiversity podcast that David asked me to do not podcast a, a session that we were running um, an IPTV session and I realized my ignorance on the topic. So they had a clinical psychologist there and I asked her, how would I go about diagnosing myself? Now, why would you ask, why would I bother to diagnose myself? Well, I, I had a suspicion I was neurodiverse because my daughter had been diagnosed and I noticed all the symptoms were very much um, in line with what I'd done. But I, you know, being the old man that I am now, I, um, <laughs> I managed to find coping mechanisms for my neurodiversity. Uh, although I was ashamed of it, there were lots of things and I, and I, that I felt embarrassed about, and probably sh- ashamed is the right word, um, because they become belief systems. And so I, I, I went ahead and paid to have a clinical diagnosis done uh, last Christmas because I felt if I'm going to talk about the topic, I need to know. Honestly, I think there's a problem with getting a diagnosis. The problem is that. Um, you can be put in a box, you know, it's quite comforting, right? Oh, well, this is the reason why I behave in this way. And, and I had I had a different, I'm not even going to go into the conditions I've got because I don't think they're, they're necessarily relevant for this topic. But but the, 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 it kind of told me what I already knew, but I had a label around it. Um, I was interested because, one, because I, for the reasons I said I was sponsoring CDAN, but also because I wanted to know if there's anything, some secret source there that would suddenly make me see things in a different way that I wasn't able to see normally. Unfortunately, the psychologist said, you pretty much figured it out for yourself already. Um, you found coping mechanisms. The only thing I did buy was a voice to speech translator, which I've used about three times because it has to go on another PC and it's not my work PC because it's not powerful enough. Um, and I don't really use it enough because I'd have to turn that PC on and I haven't got around to it. So um, most of my techniques, so things that I would do. So I struggle, with, for example, with reading a spreadsheet. I have to use my finger, um, which is pretty useless if you've ever seen our size of our spreadsheets. And it's not very applicable for me to put my finger on the screen and run it along. So one of the techniques I learned was to write it in a book. I know the numbers I need to know. So I would ask in advance or before I had help, before I had, you know, being in this role and more senior roles, I had to do it myself. I'd just run my finger along and write it in a book so that I look like I know what I'm doing, like I'm reading the spreadsheet. So you're kind of faking it, right? Um, Reading text, I 
my inability to read large quantities of text is um, known to most people now because I can now say to people, don't send me any long emails because I won't read them. And they don't. Um, you know, if it's urgent, please call me because I just can't read lots of text. I just brain goes off in a different direction and it looks like lots of black lines. But so, so back to the point of why. So that's, that's kind of things that I understood that I was different and I was interested in it. But I also, you know, one of the things that made me, um, inspired me was I decided to write an article on it for LinkedIn and I decided to after the diagnosis to actually as a leader share that and it and it's really hard to say because you kind of read the article and you think oh what, what big deal so he tells you about this and his failings in life or whatever what I see is yeah things that held me back but things that also made me stronger and made me give me you know give me the abilities that maybe other people can't don't have as easily and um but when you're writing it, it's it's all those those things come out, all those fears that you had as a child, as an adult, about your learning, about your ability to do things. And they even now they still do. They're, they're, they're hardwired and, you know, years and years and years of doing it. And I published this article and it got a lot of views and a lot of comments. And I got private emails sent to me. But one in particular stuck with me and it was a, it was a lady called Natasha and I can say her name now. She works at Cisco because she was on a all hands with me last week. And she had been diagnosed with ADHD, um, quite extreme ADHD. And she'd felt odd all her life. She knew she was different all her life. And it was, and she, she basically got help and seek sought help and, um, but she said that I'd inspired her to do something. So when I asked her to do my all hands, I said, it will inspire somebody else who has a neurodiverse condition to come out. And I think it's upon, upon us all, you know, especially if you're in a senior position to be vulnerable, to be authentic, because it helps, it helps others because they think, oh, if he can do it, I can do it, you know? And um, that's kind of how I look at all these things. So neurodiversity for me, when I talked about it with the clinical psychologist, it's kind of, it's kind of discussed as if it's an ill, an, an ailment, but for me, it's not been a necessary ailment. There are things I, I, I struggle with, but I still do them. I do them slower than everybody else, and I make more mistakes. Um, but they, they are. I don't limit myself by saying I can't do it. You know, there are sports that I'm pretty rubbish at, and I'll never be any good at. Um, my hand-eye coordination is non-existent unless I train myself, which uh, I can't be in, falls into the can't be bothered camp at the moment. But, you know, there's things like I'm doing my Land Rover and, you know, the shapes and everything else I struggle with, but I get there. You know, I'm stripping the engine down and rebuilding it and doing things. I just watch YouTube. So YouTube, you can't read text, so reading a manual is useless. So I watch YouTube. Being a godsend. Without that, I don't think I could have built a house or I did that in my built a house and I'll help build a house and... Um, did a lot of DIY around there, a lot of things, learned to use diggers and dumpers, all watching YouTube, just watching other people do it. And I can absorb information via video that I can't absorb via text. So this understanding of that, how it works. So I think seeing Natasha and how she, she has overcome her challenges and she, how nervous she was last week, because it's not on the presentation before she told me she was nervous before she came across brilliantly. And I think that, is that 30% of us have some form of neurodiversity. Would I tell everyone to go and get a clinical diagnosis? Only if you think there's some treatment that's going to make it better or there's some technique they're going to teach you. Otherwise, I wouldn't bother. 
I mean, it's quite <laughs> doing the test. That's actually quite... what I was gonna. That's yeah. actually what I was gonna ask. <laughs> I, I'm desperate to ask as well because Rosie and I have spoke about this a lot as colleagues, but more as like friends actually. And I think like I, I can relate to so much of what you say, and I, I'm pretty convinced. I've been convinced my whole life that my brain is kind of wired a wee bit differently. And in recent years, I think so many people have began speaking about ADHD, and I think social media has got a lot to do with it, especially TikTok nowadays, and. TikTok seems, my algorithm just seems to point me towards all the ADHD videos, but I genuinely can relate to so much of it. And now I look back at my childhood and, and I've almost kind of self-diagnosed myself. And I was going to come to that of like, at what point do you go through the process of diagnosis? Because I'm not sure it would do anything for me. Like the one thing that does make me think about doing it is like when I think about my symptoms of what I suspect might be ADHD, it is things like my brain is just always busy. I it just it's never quiet there, and like I just have a million things going on. And I know that that could just be a symptom of being a busy working mum, and and that's maybe just normal. But there's so many other things like what you say about reading text. I've realised over my life I'm so bad at that. Also, like I can read a book and then I can finish the book and then I'll, I've forgotten what I've read yeah. but I find it now that we live in a world of podcasts and YouTube and TikTok short 30 second videos that tell me how to make a recipe I can watch them and learn and take stuff in and podcasts I can take stuff in but reading I just can't and yeah even little things like I look back to my days at uni and I would leave everything to the last minute and then I could cram so much in in the last day of an assignment being due my friends would be like you're mad or people would say it was like my superpower that I had this ability to do it but I would procrastinate 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 and then right at the last minute do all the things that needed to get done so I've got so many things that like I mean we could I could spend hours talking about it but I'm pretty sure I do have ADHD and there's a girl that I follow on TikTok who has sort of documented her feelings that she has it and then her diagnosis and now she's medicating for it and when she kind of encourages people to go get diagnosed and to potentially medicate for it the way that she explains it is for the first time in her life ever her brain is quiet at times so when she I've started never, I've never known what that's I've never I've had a quiet brain. Never known. And I just always assumed that everyone had it. And then yeah. I had a conversation like a couple of years back with my husband where I was like, like when you go to bed at night, do you just, like, do you hear, what do you hear? And he'd be like, nothing. I just close my eyes and I go to sleep. And I can't fathom what that feels like because I just feel like I constantly have noise in my head. Yeah. And this yeah. girl who has just been diagnosed said that that's what the medication does for her is it just quietens everything. So there's a part of me that's like, really tempted to go through the process and then there's another part that's just like do you know what I've got to 32 years now I kind of manage it I know where my strengths and my weaknesses are is there any point so yeah I guess yeah yeah, yeah. I'm with you, you I'm with you people? on that yeah. as soon as I hear the word medication and brain it always frightens the living daylights out of me because you know you, some GP handing out a whole lot of bunch of smarties to you and telling you to swallow them and I think it's I mean Natasha that she told me she you know, she receives the medication and it's it's helped I, I think I think it's, it depends on how extreme it is. For me, you know, only when, as you said there, never understanding what it's like to go. I was going to bed last night and I was problem solving from the Land Rover, a problem I'd experienced. And right to the moment I go to sleep, I'm thinking about the problem. And then I go, oh, I think I figured the problem out now. And then, then you know, I've dropped off to sleep and then wake up in the morning. I'm back to thinking about the next set of problems. And I don't know whether I try and meditate. That's always a challenge. But the, the yeah, to try and quieten the brain a bit. But that's in itself. I think I think about 
the meditating. <laughs> so am I doing it well enough? Which kind of misses the point. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I mean, people, it's up to people whether they want to pay the thousand pounds to get, you know, to pay to get diagnosed. I, I found doing the tests quite, again, a lot of these things are hardwired in your brain from the fears and the experiences you had as a child. But, you know, doing the tests I found quite upsetting because it just kind of reinforces all those weaknesses you have, you know, can't see that shape. It doesn't make any sense to me. I, you know, I remember saying to the woman, I've got to give up now. There's no point. I won't get any further than this because it really wasn't any, but I can sit here for another 30 seconds. You might as well just go to the next test because I will not be able to do this. My brain can't, you know, without a pen and paper, I'm never going to be able to do this. And you're not allowed a pen and paper. So, um, yeah. But I mean, 30% of us have neurodiversity and, and it's normally more than one condition. Most neurodiversity, you have different neurodiverse conditions. Um, and some, I think know, it's, some it obviously presents so differently with other people because that's another thing that they started to show now, like studies show it's so much harder to diagnose ADHD in women than it is for men because young boys with ADHD tend to have like a lot more physical symptoms, like a lot of energy and, and that tends to be when they're younger, they kind of get boxed because of that and then girls tend to not kind of show the symptoms in that same way. And weirdly, again, TikTok and its algorithm, before we did the podcast on my lunch, a video came up where it was other people on a podcast talking about ADHD and how apparently, I don't know where the stat came from, so I can't back it up, but 80% of Olympians apparently have ADHD and it's to do with like they are so focused, focused yeah. it, I I relate to ADHD in a, in a much different a really different way like in terms of I'm such a generalist like I'm not a good specialist in one thing and I get bored of things really easily so like mm. I mean 18 months probably in a job is like about my peak and then I'm like ready to go try something else and like I don't know I, I get or I get really obsessive about things for a certain amount of time. And then once I feel like I've taken everything out of that, I then like just drop it and then I'm off to the next thing. So, but it's funny that because then you've got, they say like Olympians are just so hyper-focused on a certain thing. And pilots apparently are a, a lot of them on the autism spectrum or have ADHD because of the whole hyper-focused thing. So, but yeah, it's super interesting. But I guess going back to the workplace, maybe over years and the generations before us there's maybe been a bit of a stigma around having a neurodiversity like do you see that changing and and also just from like a a communication point of view if you are a leader of someone in your team who has a neurodiversity or you are neurodivergent like what is the best way to communicate that like with your peers or do you see it kind of opening up a bit more now i i think i think it's i think because it's such a high percentage of the population has it and everyone's always curious about, you know, I might be this, I might be that, you know, that kind of, and, and sometimes you're right, you know, you, you're self-diagnosed and you're in the right direction or you might just, you might have a different neuro, you know, it might be neurodivergent, but in a different subject, or you might have a couple together that come, that's why you, you know, you're saying, well, Olympians are like this, but I always worried when they kind of give these big statistics, like 80% or something of, of, because of, you always think to yourself, really, is that, is that, is that really true? Or is that just sort of somebody's come up with? Um, you know, because it was the, I don't know, some neurodiverse group that decided who had ADHD wanted to make sure that they looked really, it's like when they talk about it being a superpower, it's not a superpower, it's just one of those things. It's like overcoming your problems is a human characteristic. It's not a neurodivergent characteristic, right? It's, it's, we as human beings have survived because we overcome it. Um, 
so, so overcome things, overcome problems. So I, I think whether you're neurodivergent or not, you have problems. Everyone has problems, whatever they are, and you have to overcome them, right? And and I think, you know, for, yeah, so I forgot what the question was actually. <laughs> what's, the, what's the question? Was, it's just more so around in the workplace, you think? Oh, in the, in the workplace. I don't know. It, I, or, I think or, it varies from country to country, right? I mean... I listen to my US colleagues and they're scared. They say people are scared to, to admit they're neurodivergent because of the employment law out there. I think if you go to a country where employment law protects you, I think people are more willing to talk about being neurodivergent. Um, but again, I, I, I think we've got to be so careful that understanding it, but not making excuses for it. Does that make sense? Now, if you've got extreme, if you're extreme examples of it, then yes, you absolutely do need help. And maybe you need medication in certain circumstances or certain conditions. But, you know, I had a boss that, that he, he struggled um, and he would, he, would, he would draw and everyone thought he was doodling and he wasn't paying attention, but that was his only way of stopping him outbursting in a meeting was to literally just draw, scribble, Google, and he was just way of focusing. Otherwise he wouldn't be able to listen to what was going on around him. And he would just bleh, blurt out in quite an aggressive way as well. Um, so he was misunderstood, I think, in many ways because of that, um, because of his condition. And of course, then mental health and neurodiversity go hand in hand as well. Um, because often having these conditions can cause depression, anxiety, um, you know, because you feel different, you feel isolated from your peers, I feel isolated from members, you know there's something different about you, that in itself can make you feel, have mental health ramifications in terms of, you know, your mental state, not feeling part of the, the tribe, can often feeling isolated, having to tend to be something you're not, to fit in. All of these things can have ramifications from your mental state. So I think talking about it, letting people know, is important. I'm kind of drawn between two camps, right? One is to let everyone know, at the same time, please don't label me as being, you know, neurodivergent and I can't do my job because maybe I can do my job, but I can do my job in a different way to where you do it, or there's a pertinent part of my job, I'm gonna be better at it than you are, and other parts I'm gonna be far worse. I mean, I know if you pump, dropped a 200 page document in front of me, said read it and tell me what, what it says and summarize it, I'm probably the worst person to do that. And yet I managed to get through university. I managed to get through my master's degree, writing feet, you know, dissertations and all sorts. So I am capable of doing it. It probably just takes an awful lot more horsepower to do it than the average person. I think that's the difference, right? And then other things, I can see how things fit together on a structural level at a, at a, you know, as part of the company. Maybe other people can't see so easily. So I can say that bit yeah. there is that bit there, that bit there, that bit there. Not because I'm super smart, anything but, but I can just see patterns in that way that I can't see. No, and it probably plays into what you were saying earlier around, you know, you sharing your story and being able to inspire others to either get themselves diagnosed or just join communities like CDAN um, to be able to learn, you know, potential coping me mechanisms or learn how to kind of manage their own um, symptoms and feelings. So you say, I can imagine, especially for me, if I felt like I'd have a neurodivergency, I would have to get diagnosed because I'm the type of person that would need to know because I'd need to kind of get that in line and then I'd be able to like move on and 
build in that coping mechanism. So I would need to be able to do that to kind of get myself organized and through it. And so I think it's very dependent on how you are as an individual around whether you do choose to get diagnosed. But did you feel that kind of for you, obviously, you said that you already had built in those coping mechanisms because you kind of got diagnosed later on. Did you feel like it kind of validated you in in, in, in some way, a way yes. that, that that you then could you know get on with your working life and be like right well you know I'm not going to be able to do that and not be so hard on yourself if that makes sense. I, I think I think less the my my conditions are more about my private life than my work life. There are things like reading right. and stuff like that I struggle with, but. I cope with it. I mean, I've got good verbal skills, better than average verbal skills as a result of my, and that's just because that's what it diagnosed me with, right? But but I have worse written and um, reading skills, but I can write well, it just takes me longer. So I know that I don't write so well, so I will spend time. So one of the things I do, for example, is I get somebody else to write something and I completely rewrite it. It seems to work for me. So, so that way I end up having someone to get over that bit that you talked about, you know, starting, getting going, that, that get someone else to write it, that leads, that triggers me. And then I can just rewrite it. No, it should be like this. And then I rewrite it. And then I might take a long time to rewrite it. But if it's important enough to write, then it, it kind of deserves the time. But in terms of that diagnosis, yeah, part of it was like saying yes, you know, but it was more to do with my private life because it affected me in things like sports my hand-eye coordination. And when I was, but as I got older, I become more comfortable with myself. You know, I've gone on a voyage of discovery of myself and, and understanding myself better and trying to change the way I behave, not in, more than just this and other ways. I won't bore you with all of that today because it's not about me in that sense. But, um, but as part of that, as I got older, I, you know, one of the things is social embarrassment with neurodiverse conditions, right? So social embarrassment, will I do something, will I embarrass myself? And so what I learned to do was to learn the things I'm going to be rubbish at and I need to train myself to do, I do in my private, in my in private, so away from everybody else's glare, and then I learn it. And then I then I don't feel so embarrassed. Um, or I'm not embarrassed because I can do it then, but I have to maintain it. Um, so that's how I did it when I built the house. You know, I did it. I was just left on my own to get on and do things around the house and to do stuff. And I learned it myself at the beginning, you know, where I might struggle, but no one was watching. So it didn't matter. And then once I got the handle on it, it may take me longer to get there than the average person. Then I'm okay. Cause I've kind of got the brain. I have to maybe work a bit faster, but it, 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 I can achieve something. Um, so, you know, I'm less fearful than I was when I was younger of doing, trying things. Um, that I want to do the things that make me happy, not doing things that, you know, like I'm going to go do a sport. I'm going to be rubbish at it. I'm going to keep practicing or get better at it just for the sake of it. Just to prove I'm not interested in that. I'll go and do something that I might struggle with, but I want to do and I have a genuine interest in. So having the diagnosis kind of just confirmed, I suppose that um, all these things I knew I probably had were confirmed back in writing. Um, probably more for me and my brother. My brother says, now nah, you're nothing wrong with you. Because <laughs> like, yes, it is. It says it is. So now yeah. you can leave me alone. I think that's kind of where where I'm at is almost just like just to yeah, almost just to know like yeah, I I was right all along, and I think I picked up on loads of things that you said there actually. But I 
always used to tell a story like before I joined Cisco I did a bit of time doing a startup and part of that journey I went to speak at a lot of events a lot of like startup businesses and speaking to entrepreneurs or kids at school and I used to always tell the same story and and that's another thing weirdly I think is one of my strengths is public speaking and it's because I have in my brain the ability to just be able to keep a whole thing like a whole speech in my head and be able to recite it like and and it's probably as one of my key strengths I think is public speaking whereas a lot of people dread it I really love it because I, I like I feel like I really like come into my own when it comes to public speaking and it's this ability to be able to just memorize a lot of like by I know what you're saying about writing it I can't read it and then memorize it but I used to record it listen to it and then I could memorize it but I used to tell kids at school the same story of I was always a real generalist at school all round there kind of like a level student like all like i would do well in most subjects and then when it came to hires which is our equivalent of like a level in england i think maths i just really started to struggle for the first time and they they kept telling me like you're probably not going to pass like the best you might get would be a c and i was just a stubborn stubborn kid and i went away and i worked so hard at maths like to the point that i kind of to the detriment of other subjects i just was so focused on maths and in the end of it i came out with an a but I had to well work so hard to get it. And that was like almost like a total, it's like one of those points that I look back and I think that was a point that I was like, there's something not right here. Like in terms of, I know I can do it, but the energy that it took for me to get that, whereas when it comes to words and languages, I just didn't really have to think about it. Um, yeah. So yeah, and now I think I've just, I had got to a point where I, would, I was just so sure that I was generalist, that I could take on most things when it came to work. But now I think I've kind of, as I've gotten older as well, like I'm very aware now of the things that are just are not my strengths. And there's no point in me trying to pretend that I can do it. And I just think I'm just much better at playing to my strengths, like knowing the bits that I'm good at. And I just think like if people, I just think, yeah, it just helps so much, so many more people if they can just kind of embrace that, there's going to be parts that they're just not going to be good at and if we can just accept that and let's just not go well, for that's those what jobs teams are, for the... I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's exactly teams. Yeah. I, I surround myself with people who all the bits I can't do which is pretty much everything so I just surround yeah. myself with people who do everything for me and I do nothing now I literally do nothing <laughs> I, literally, I just sit there and wait all to be done for me and I know that I take the glory of course and take all the or the credit for it, but like but thank I, I goodness to... for people in teams that can do Excel. Like thank, like thank yeah, the Lord yeah. for them because I cannot do Excel. <laughs> Listen to me, do Excel, but I just can't. But thank goodness there are people in our teams that can because where would yeah. we be without them? <laughs> well, I agree with you, and I think that's the secret of building high-performing teams, and that's when your diversity comes in because it's about that um inclusion and, and and the diversity element of it, right? Including them in the team, letting them have a have a voice. And I think it's like starting, I don't think we're there yet, but starting to understand how people's different neurodiverse conditions can actually aid them in the workplace rather than hinder them. I think we're coming from a position of it's a hindering. It's, even the fact it's in CDAN, disability, you know, it's, it's, it's a disability, yes, but there's some other flip sides to it. And the, there are some really strong strengths that come off the back of it. Now, I can't retain any information. I wish I was, I was listening to you. I wish I could do like swaps. You know, I'll give you this if you give me that. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that, does it? I, I mean, I, I can, I must have retained information to get through my exams and stuff. But, you know, I, I remember doing my master's degree and it was seven exams. You had to pass all seven. And I paid for this degree because it wasn't paid for for your master's. And, um, 
my dad would come to my house, my flat every morning. I got rid of my television set because, you know, I couldn't resist watching television if I'm bored doing studying. So I got rid of the television set for six weeks and I studied and studied and studied on my own. And um, he'd come at 5 a.m. in the morning and from 5 a.m. to 9 before I left for the tube to catch, to go to London, to go to the university to do my exam, he would just test me. And then I'd done that one test and I'd go to the next one for the next day. And I couldn't tell you, by the time I'd done the second one, I couldn't tell you what I'd done for the first one. I can't retain anything. So I was no, literally I, just forcing it in. <laughs> I, I can't either. Like my skill is exactly that though, that I can retain it for as long as I need to and then it's gone. Like, so if I am doing a presentation, I will be able to like nail the presentation, but the next day probably couldn't tell you anything that I said in that. So it's very <laughs> short term retention. And it's funny because like all my friends joke and I've been the constant butt of the joke that I can't remember my school days. Like, so my friends now will talk about, oh, do you remember so-and-so from school? Remember when they did this? Or no, remember when that I happened? can't. It's a blur. I don't remember. And my friends will be like, what is wrong with you? Why can you not remember? You were there. You were in that class. Don't you remember when that happened with that maths teacher? And I'll be like, no. It's uh, almost as if like my whole life is just a bit of a blur. And I, I kind of have to live it through other people. It's, but then I have really strong memories of certain things. But day to day is just... Maybe school wasn't that blur. important to you. Because I'm the same. I can remember five or six people from school. Not even remember them, but sort of distant memory. I met the head of Sky Procurement. And um, he had gone to school with me and I kind of recognised his face. He seemed to know me a lot better than I knew him. Um, but <laughs> it was kind of like, yeah, I kind of know who you are. kind of remember playing football with you, but kind of can't really, you know. And he didn't really go to, he didn't live in that same part of town as me either. But but yeah, I know I'm with you on that. Uh, there are things I can remember, but most of them, are, schools are blur for most of it to kind of round up because I'm conscious of time but I think one of your things that you mentioned earlier is a bit of a call to action for people within Cisco especially across mm. EMEA uh, so maybe not so much UK but anyone who isn't aware of the CDAN network to kind of get involved or see speak to any of like the kind of reps in your area who are already involved and yeah see reach out to me to I can put them in the right direction right so so yeah absolutely just you don't have to have a disability to have to join CDAN. It's about, you were talking about earlier, it's about awareness and, and helping out and driving that awareness. And if you have a passion to, to, to kind of overcome prejudice and, and, to, and to really to help the company get the best talent and to tap into new pools of resources, then, then this is absolutely the right role to kind of help out. And it's not just what you do in work, it's what you do it's what we do in our in our social groups in our societies in our communities understanding this suddenly makes you aware of, of groups of people that may be invisible that we might be needing to reach out to in our communities not exactly and as you say it's about educating yourself so you you know you're not ignorant to the situation and you do educate yourself so that actually moving forward you can notice like notice or be able to support someone to make sure that you know we're getting the best out of people so it was for from Colette and I it's all about the education police and getting involved where where you can yeah, yeah. and hopefully this podcast today people will have taken something from your story and, and what we've spoken about today Richard so all that's left for us to say on that note is thank you so much for your time um I, I really you. do think this will be a really popular episode I think a lot of people will take something away from it so yeah thank you so much for joining us oh, thanks for inviting me thanks guys take care
Rosie, like we said at the start and in the intro of this, we knew it was going to be a great conversation, but it really was, wasn't it? And I think there will be lots of things that people can take away from today's conversation, whether you're somebody who sat and listened to this and thought that you can relate to a lot of it and think maybe I will go down the route of looking for a diagnosis, or maybe you're a leader and you're actually just having a bit of a light bulb moment of how can I actually support people and my team better with a neurodiversity. Hopefully now that you know that Richard's there and that there's a network there that you can reach out to for support on how how best to sort of communicate and, and work as a team more effectively with people who maybe have and you know and who are you divergent yeah and education is key so i would urge everyone to reach out to whatever network you have available um even if that's a friend colleague as we Colette and i said at the start colleagues can sometimes be easier to speak to than um someone at home so reach out if you feel that you need to have um, more of a conversation about it. Agreed. And hopefully this podcast episode will be going out ahead of, or if not on, World Mental Health Day, which is the 10th of October. So just again, to reiterate, there's always someone to talk to about anything that you might be struggling with, whether that's at home or at work. And yeah, talking is key. So um, yeah, and I think just really important time of the year to to put the spotlight on, Rosie, don't you think? 100%. And it ties in nicely with Mental Health um, Awareness Day, which we spoke about during the podcast and how it has the links and how there's higher suicide rates amongst neurodivergent people. And so it just makes it ever more important to raise awareness about it. Agreed. So, yeah. All in all, another great podcast episode, something very different once again. We're very lucky to just get to cover such different topics. No pod is ever the same. So, um, yeah, I think that's all we will leave you with. There will be a tech talk of some sort coming up <laughs> once we've sorted out the schedule. So, again, Rosie, you can do your normal call out. What do people have to do if they like the pod? If you love the pod, please like and subscribe uh, or email us if you want to drop us a little note on a UKI podcast at cisco.com and we do we would love to just have one just one we just love to have a wee bit of feedback a wee thanks very much i really enjoyed that episode something that we can read out um so yeah give us a like give us a follow send us an email get in touch with us on webex if you're in cisco there's so many options guys thank you <laughs>